Thank you. If you have your Bibles this morning, our passage will be Isaiah chapter 55. Follow along as I read God's word this morning. Isaiah 55 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight your soul in richness. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that your soul may live and I will cut an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful loving kindness of David. Behold, I have given him as a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of Yahweh your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has adorned you with beautiful beautiful glory. Verse 6. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with gladness and be led forth with peace The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up, and instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be to Yahweh for his renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. That's the word of the Lord this morning. You may be seated. In 2016, there was a high schooler named Jamal Hinton, and his story went viral. You know, as he sat in his high school English class, he got a text from a grandma inviting him to Thanksgiving dinner. The thing was, it wasn't his grandma. It was uh, a grandma. And after she realized that uh, she had the wrong number, this grandma told Jamal that her, her invitation to Thanksgiving dinner was still good. And she said she didn't mind him coming over at all because that's just what grandmas do. So these once strangers now have celebrated seven Thanksgivings together. We are constantly bombarded with the world's invitations. Sometimes the invitations seem like innocent, sweet grandmas inviting us over for a holiday meal. And Jamal's story had a happy ending But the world deceptively invites us to places that promise to satisfy, but can only offer a hollow, empty, disintegrating mirage of fulfillment. Amazingly, so many in this life reject God's invitation. So many become like beggars in the gutters, rejecting an invitation to a dinner at the mansion 
Instead, we are pleased to eat dinner from the dumpster. We are far too often satisfied in the slum to recognize what God has done for us. So this morning, as we celebrate Christ's triumph over the death and over the grave, I want to focus this morning on the enduring invitation. The enduring invitation. There's no clearer evidence than this enduring invitation than Isaiah chapter 55. Our passage this morning comes right after the prophet has explained the suffering servant, right, who we know to be Jesus Christ. Chapter 55, he shifts then to the one true God extending this enduring invitation to everyone to be truly satisfied in him. God extends this invitation to sinners to find rest and to find peace. And I don't want to assume that everyone who is here this morning is a Christian or is a believer. And so here's, here's the word for you this morning. If you are far from God, he invites you to come. And if you are near to him, then this is the message that we are commanded to take across the street, to take into our workplace, to take to the nations. Here in 13 short verses, I want to highlight two aspects of this enduring invitation of God. These are the two points in your notes this morning. Number one, you will see the enduring invitation reflects the grace of God. We've talked about the grace of God already this morning. We're going to see it reflected here in this invitation. The enduring, number two, the enduring invitation reflects the agenda of God. What does he have planned? This invitation reflects God's agenda. So let's take it and unpack that this morning in verses one through seven. We're going to see this enduring invitation reflects the grace of God. And so in context of the book of Isaiah, Israel now has been exiled to Babylon because of their stubborn sin and they're being judged because of it. But now, but now God in this enduring invitation is going to redeem and nourish and forgive the sins of his people. And this morning, God is inviting you to be redeemed and to be nourished and to be forgiven. And as you run down these first seven verses, there's 12 direct imperatives in the text. Commands of God. As you run through it, you say that God commands sinners to come, to buy, to eat, to come again, to buy, to listen, to eat, to incline your ear, to come, to hear, to seek, to call upon him. Just look at verse 1. Everyone who thirsts, come. You who have no money, come. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. What do you think the, the key word of verse 1 is? Come, come. True satisfaction is only found in the living God and you must come to him. And notice who he's talking to here. It's the thirsty the hungry, the poor, the broke. And that's no different than what Jesus talked about, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize their spiritual hunger are free to come to God and find everlasting satisfaction. In John chapter seven, verse 37, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And so this opening verse of Isaiah 55, it's, it's as if God is the street vendor and he's standing on the corner selling to anyone who's walking by. And if you've ever left Staples Center or uh, Dodger Stadium, you know, there's people who, who, 
who sell, and they have this griddle, and it's in a shopping cart and a propane tank underneath, and you smell them before you see them, because on one side, there's, they're grilling onions and peppers, and on the other, bacon-wrapped hot dogs, and, and they're, get, they're trying as hard as they can to get you to buy that, and they're yelling out, hot dog, hot dog, hot dog, right? But unlike the street vendor, what God is selling, you do not need money to buy. Look at the second half of verse 1. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why? Because the price has already been paid on the cross. Look at Isaiah 55 verse 2. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? The invitation is not only to those who are poor and thirsty. We see that in verse 1. But what if you don't recognize your spiritual poverty? What if you think you do have enough money and that you, never would, you would never accept a free lunch? Verse 2 shows us that arrogant self-sufficiency automatically disqualifies you from God's blessing. Only the thirsty can come to God and drink. And so the prophet here in verse 2, he rebukes those who will not accept the invitation based on their own self-sufficiency, right? Those who have enough money, those who think they can work for themselves, those who see no need for a savior because they have no sense of sin, right? Those people, they don't want to be satisfied because they are satisfied in themselves. They have the time to kill the money to spend, the energy to party, the personality to socialize, the interest to stimulate, and they can do that all on their own. But hear me, church. Tear tear away that mask. Let the economy fail. Let a loved one die or a close relationship be crushed. And you too may discover the hollowness of it all, the vanity of it all. Basically, Isaiah is saying here in verse 2, sin makes fools of us all. Verse 2 is akin to Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? What does it profit a man to live in a huge house, to live in a gated community, but his soul is homeless? What does it profit a man to wear fancy clothes, but his soul is naked? What does it profit a man to drive a luxury car with an ornament on the hood, but his soul is hitchhiking for a ride? What can man give in this world in exchange for his soul? And you know the answer. Nothing. Nothing. So verse 2 exhorts us. Listen carefully to me. Look at the text. Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and delight your soul in richness. Here again, that call is extended. All who hear and respond to the invitation will truly be satisfied. Those who are hungry, they're not going to get some cheap gas station food, but God offers this to you, a feast that will truly satisfy, drink that will kill your thirst. This is the grace of God. John 5, 24 Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life. He shall not face the judgment. He has passed from death to life. God commands sinners here simply to come to him. In addition to come to him, God commands sinners also to trust 
in his promises. Trust in his promises. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Incline your ear to me and come to me. Listen that your soul may live. Again, there's that call, that command really to come to God. But notice, you must incline your ear and hear this great invitation in order to come. You must hear the word. You must hear and trust and come to God. And so look at the text again, verse 3. Listen so your soul will live. This amazing grace, this amazing grace of God has a lifetime guarantee. There's no bartering. There's no negotiation There's no strings attached to the invitation. God offers new life, abundant life, eternal life to those who will just come to him. He describes it in this way, verse 3. Look at it, second half. And I will cut an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful loving kindness of David. This invitation for sinners to get right with God is guaranteed by his loyal, covenant-keeping love. He says, it's like my sure and steadfast love that I have for David. Just like King David was a great king, Jesus is the new and better David. We just sang a song about Christ being the new and better Adam. Well, he's the new and better David too. Right? He'll be called Emmanuel, God with us. And so when we read verse 3, we must ask ourselves, well, what kind of love does God love David with? Listen to Psalm 89, verse 3 and 4. I have cut a covenant with my chosen. That's the Messiah. And I have sworn. That means he's promised. He's covenanted to David, my servant. I will establish your seed, right, your offspring forever and build up the th- your throne from generation to generation. That's the kind of love that Isaiah is picking up on here in chapter 55. God is saying this invitation is valid. It's guaranteed by the one who's coming, which is the Messiah, right? He's the one who's going to bring salvation to the nations. If you recall, uh, when the angel comes to Mary, remember what he says to her? He says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him. Listen, what will he give Jesus? The throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and there will be no end to his kingdom. Alarm bells should be going off, right? Those are words that we've heard before. It's the same exact language here. The promise to David is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and that fulfillment is the promise of eternal life. Isaiah shows the nature of this covenant is full and eternal, and it's guaranteed. That's the nature of the covenant behind this enduring invitation. And he'll bring it to completion and provide everything that he said he would. He continues in verse 4. Behold, I have given him as a witness to the peoples, a ruler and a commander for, all, for the peoples. Again, this is a reference to the Messiah King who was to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And these promises of this invitation are only fulfilled in the divine person and redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ. John 14, verse 6. Well, you want to be saved? 
Jesus says, I am the way. You want to be sure? Jesus says, I am the truth. You want to be satisfied? Jesus says, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In Isaiah 55, verse 5, the Lord speaks directly to this anointed king, the Messiah, and he says, Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of Yahweh your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has adorned you with beautiful glory. This fifth verse declares that the reign of the Messiah King will not be limited to a geographical location, but to the entire world. He will be a king of the nations. And so you can trust this this call of this enduring invitation because Jesus is the one who underwrites it all. God commands sinners, you and me, first to, to come to him. And then he also says and commands sinners to trust in his promises. And point C in your notes, God commands sinners to repent of their sins. Repent of their sins. This, there, there's an enduring invitation. We've covered that, right? To all who will come to God. But look at verse 6 and 7. 6 and 7, it makes it clear that you must come to God on his terms, not your terms. The invitation is sent and your RSVP is required today. Verse 6 says, you must repent expediently. And verse 7 says, you must repent entirely. Look at verse 6. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You who are thirsty, hungry, and poor, you can find him here this morning. You cannot guarantee that you'll be able to find him after service. Tomorrow evening or next week, call upon him while he is near. Verse 6, there's parallel language there, right? To seek the Lord is to call upon the Lord. And the emphasis of verse 6 then is that this is an urgent call. Urgent call. When should you seek the Lord? While he may be found. When should you call upon him? While he is near. This language suggests that there is going to be a time when God may not be found and a time where he may be found. There's a time when God is near and there's going to be a time where God is not near. And so when is God not near enough to be found? Listen, if you have breath this morning, you can find him. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. And that's the the whole point of this. You do not have time to waste There is a call to repent immediately. And here's the beauty of the invitation. If you repent, if you repent, it has a lifetime guarantee, but it's a limited time offer. I don't have to tell you that life is short. I've been there when families bury infants, and I've been at funerals of those who are pushing 100 years old. If there's one guarantee in this life, it's death. And after that comes the judgment. And eternity is too long to have been playing games in this life. You don't have time to meddle with sin. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon the Lord while he is near. Church, you cannot run and hide from God, but you can run and hide in God. Hear the prophet 
says in verse six, repent expediently. And then in verse seven, not only does he say repent expediently, but he says repent entirely. Right, this verse may be one of the most succinct statements of what real repentance is. Look at the text, verse seven. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. See, repentance is not merely just regret and remorse. It's being sorry enough to quit. On the one hand, repentance is to forsake sin, right? Let the, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. He says, forsake both your thoughts and your ways. That is both the nature and the conduct. In our intentions and our behavior, we have rebelled against God and we must repent. And so to come to him, he says, we must forsake our sinful ways and our thoughts. But after you've forsaken your sin, what then must we do? There's one, verse, one, one word in verse seven, return, return, return to Yahweh. Listen, God has done it all. He's accomplished it. The blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ are sufficient to pay the penalty of sin, vindicated by the Father, by the resurrection, uh, and it's proved by the resurrection, which we celebrate here this morning. So return to the Lord and he will have compassion on you. Return to God and he will abundantly pardon. Do not delay because you think you've gone too far. Isaiah 55, 7, is, it's a wonderful restatement of Isaiah 1, verse 18. Come, now let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And so in verses 1 through 7, we see that God's enduring invitation reflects the grace of God. And now eight, uh, verses 8 through 13, we'll see that this enduring invitation reflects the agenda of God. The agenda of God. See, you remember, God's agenda has been moving through Scripture uh, as he carried out this promise of the seed in Genesis 3, 15. And he, he carries it out all through redemptive history. And it will culminate in the Messiah seating, sitting upon his throne, ruling with truth and justice. And he has used the weak and the humble to further his agenda. And so in the rest of our passage, Isaiah wants to make it clear that God's promises stand true. God's promises stand true. And in verses 8 through 13, Isaiah is going to give us three proofs that the enduring invitation will advance God's agenda. And we see that first by the enduring invitation reflects the mind of God. And so... Let's set up this first point by looking at verse 7, right? If you, first, if you will forsake your sin and return to the Lord, he will have compassion and abundantly pardon the guilty sinners. What does that mean? It means that there is no skeleton in your closet. There is no stain on your shirt. There is no blemish on your character. There is no crime on your record for which God cannot pardon. No shame no guilt, no fear is big enough that he will not clean or pardon or show mercy. He will abundantly pardon. There is more grace than there is sin. 
We cannot wrap our minds around that concept. And in verse eight, the prophet rushes in to say that you must not judge God's thoughts and ways by your thoughts and your ways. Look at verse eight and nine. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are, my ways, uh, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Right? Verse 8 says that, um, that God's thoughts are different than ours, right? And that shouldn't be a surprise to you. And if it is, come talk to me after. I, I enjoy learning things. I like reading books. And, you know, I'm, I'm amazed at how little I know. I'll often read a book and be filled with awe at how much knowledge and talent and ability there is out there. And, you know, there's enough that I don't know to be able to fill thousands of libraries. And that's true of every one of us. Church, we cannot judge God on the basis of what we know. Proverbs 3, verse 5, Solomon admonishes us, trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Right? What's the translation there? Do not depend on what you think you know. God's thoughts and his ways are different than ours. Moreover, God's thoughts and ways are higher than ours. And you ask yourself, how high? Well, look at the verse. As the heavens are higher than the earth. This means that God is transcendent. He's infinitely above us and beyond us. His thoughts are way above ours. So far as the heavens are above the earth. And we see, we see, and when we think about the resurrection, it proves that, right? How can we wrap our minds around the fact that, that, that the resurrection even happened? Think about what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good, a good man, someone would even dare to die. Maybe just, maybe someone would dare risk his life for a good man. But God has shown love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you then have no ground to stand on to question or judge God. Rather, you should trust him and submit to him and worship him. Because Psalm 96 verse 4 says, Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. So trust this enduring invitation then because it reflects the mind of God. Secondly, the enduring invitation advances God's agenda by showing you how God communicates. It shows how God communicates. So verses 8 and 9 tells us that God's thoughts are infinitely higher, right? infinitely above us. And so if that's the case, how is it possible to even know God's ways or understand his thoughts? You see, if God is way up there and I'm way down here, how can I think God's thoughts after him? Well, look at verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And so God is using this illustration, uh, using an illustration to, to get at his bigger point here. Right, we can see that God Accomplish, is accomplishing his agenda here on earth by sending storms, 
right? The rain and snow, they just don't fall from heaven and then evaporate for no purpose, right? When God sends storms, something happens, right? It makes the earth sprout. Just look at the hills around us right now. See, God is accomplishing his plan. And notice at the end of verse 10, he gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. This is how great God is, right? The seed, right? You think about that. That's the, that's the beginning of the whole eating process. And the bread on the table is the end result of that whole process. And so from beginning to end, God's got it all covered. But look at verse 11. The same God who speaks through storms is the God who speaks through scripture. He's not only able to accomplish his agenda by sending the storms to this earth, but ultimately he has accomplished his plan by sending his word. Look at verse 11. So my word will uh, word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. Right? There's a correlation to how God sends storms on the earth and how God sends his word to us. Right? They both come down from above and they both accomplish his purposes. 2 Timothy 3.16 declares that all scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God might be competent or equipped for every good work. See, the Bible does not originate with man. And so what I have been reading to you this morning are not my thoughts. These are not my words. It is God's self-revelation and communication of himself to us. So when God sends his word, it is to be trusted because of it is the full representation of God himself. So when his word goes forth from his mouth, it will not return empty to him. And so that should encourage me, and I am encouraged, that as I stand up here and read it, it's not my word. And it should encourage you. When you take this same message out to your non-believing friends or family, and it's not your word. It's God's word. The word of the gospel is true and we must believe it. Who knows how God will use the proclamation of his word? Right? Because his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Right? God's word accomplishes exactly what God wanted, when God wants it, and how God wants it. So trust his amazing grace then because of how it shows the mind of God and how it shows how God communicates. And finally, we can uh, stand firm in this enduring invitation because it shows how God acts. It shows how God acts. Remember, God is speaking to the people of Israel in exile under, underneath the Babylonian captivity. And he says this in verse 12, for you will go out with gladness and be led forth with peace. So that means that, that the people will come out of captivity, but he wants to make it clear. It's God who's acting here, right? You will go out because you have been led out of captivity, and the chapter, again, is, is just another reminder that we are saved not by anything that we do for God, but what God does for us. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. So to prove that God is the one who does the work, notice how you will be let out. In peace and in gladness, the text says. 
So only God can give lasting joy and peace. And so the point is that this is only coming from God himself. God is saying, hey, when I work, it is going to be so obvious that I alone did the work. I imagine God saying, as you come out of captivity with joy and peace on your way home, you're not going to be the only one rejoicing, right? But as you pass by, nature itself is going to be caught up in the celebration of God's greatness, right? The mountains and the hills, Isaiah says, will break forth into shouts of joy before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. I love that. You know, I, uh, I'm embarrassed sometimes to clap when I sing. And it's mostly because I uh, get off beat. But the Bible says it's the trees. The trees are going to be clapping their hands. Right? All nature will join in the praise of God, and God must be praised. Verses 12 and 13, you can, you can view them as two sides of a coin. On one side, verse 12, is the grace. And the other side, verse 13, is his abundant mercy. Verse 12 is getting what we don't deserve. And verse 13 shows us what we deserve getting held back. Look at verse 13. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. That language should start reminding you of Genesis, right? In Eden, Genesis 1 through 3, and after sin entered the garden, you remember what God said to Adam? Cursed is the ground because of you. You will work by the sweat of your brow. And the, the, the ground is going to give back thorns and thistles. And that applies to us too. When you work, all it's going to produce is thorns and thistles. But when God works, darkness is exchanged for light. Slavery is exchanged for freedom. Wartime is exchanged for peace. Death is exchanged for life. Judgment is exchanged for salvation. The wilderness is exchanged for the promised land. Tireless work is exchanged for rest. Curse is exchanged for blessing. Thorns are exchanged for cypress trees. And weeds are exchanged for evergreens. So why does God think the way he thinks? Why does God speak the way he speaks? Why does God work the way he works? Why do we celebrate the resurrection of Christ this morning? Look at verse 13. Isaiah answers the question. And it will be to Yahweh for his renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. God's mind, works, and actions are all for one thing alone. His name's sake. So what does every great piece of artwork have on it? Right? It's the artist's name or watermark or initials down in the bottom corner. Why? Why do they do that? You put your name on something so that there's no confusion about who did the work. God's grace is so amazing and so perfect, so unique, so transcendent that you cannot take credit for what he has done in your life. It is to make great the name of the Lord. God does not save us to make our name great, but to make his name great. Church of the Canyons, we're going to be entering into a new season, all right, with Pastor Chris coming. And I pray that our song will be Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Yahweh, not 
to us, but to your name give glory because your loving kindness and because of your truth. God is concerned with one thing and one thing alone, and it's his name. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or how you look. Jesus has paid it all, and his name is sufficient to offer forgiveness, new life, and eternal hope. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you so much for this amazing grace this amazing grace that you've extended to guilty sinners to get right with you through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ and him alone. Father, I pray for those who might be here with us this morning who have not run to the cross, those who have not thrown themselves upon your mercy and trusted the blood and righteousness of Christ for salvation. God, would you please bring them to the end of themselves? Would you draw them to yourself by your sovereign grace and by the working of your wonderful Holy Spirit? Give them saving faith. I pray for those who, who do know you, that you would forgive us for not being as astounded by your grace as we should. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but you, being rich in mercy because of your great love with which you loved us. You caused us to be made alive again in Christ. All by grace we have been saved. Father, I pray that we would never lose sense of that wonder and let, uh, let that wonder move us into a life of obedience and trust in you. Even if that requires us to suffer for the sake of Christ. And I pray also for this church. Allow us to be a lighthouse that points, to the, lo points the lost and weary sinners home to you as we extend your invitation to others. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.